looking at what might seem to be an interruption to our study of the moral life. Namely, we're looking at grace and salvation. And I'll say a bit about why the Catechism has chosen to put those topics in the context of moral theology. But it is um, a very deliberate choice uh, by the writers of the Catechism. So we're going to general topic, salvation, grace and justification. This is going to be a complicated board, so note how I space things out. So, give me five columns. Justification. That's going to be our widest. Then, grace. Causation. Merit. And holiness. So, holiness, merit, causation, grace, justification. So, any of you who've got evangelical friends, Protestant friends, will know this is one of the things they uh, disagree with us on, where they parted from us on the, at the Reformation, the question of justification, which is linked with the question of what causes what. So, do we truly merit our salvation. Uh, what, where does grace fit into it? So, what are we going to note? Trying to create. Okay. So we're going to, with respect to merit, our Catholic belief is that good deeds earn merits, that that is true, even with God being the cause of everything. So if we're going to ask the question of causation, well the cause of all good deeds is ultimately God, and more technically, charity which is the love of God in us. We ask, what is grace? What do we mean by the word grace? Um, it's our participation in the life of God. Justification, um, kind of broadly speaking, what do we mean by justification? When someone is justified before God, that you're all not justified because you're sinners, that your sin means there's this thing between you and God. How is it possible for you to be somehow justified before him? Well, a Catholic understanding says that, as, well, no, a number of things, but justification it truly is, it's primarily about a change in the person. 
not just the change in your status or not just a change in the verdict. So you are born in a state of original sin, you are born with a verdict therefore of damnation upon you. How do you become justified? Well, justification is primarily not just God somehow kind of changing his mind about you, but there being a change in you that results in a change in the verdict on you. Notice grace, grace, a free gift, brings about that change. And we cooperate with that grace Thus, we merit by our cooperation. Okay, but what causes what? Um, well, I've said the cause ultimately is God, charity, his, the love of God in us. So when we do good deeds, our good deeds are his deeds in us. To repeat the thing about cooperation, that we cooperate as real agents. It's not just fake. We do truly cooperate and thus truly cooperate in the causation of what happens. And the cause, therefore, is God as noted is our union with Christ. Um, and cooperation. With respect to Union with Christ, that's an abbreviation. Saying more about grace, we'll say a fair bit today. What is grace? We're going to note that it is supernatural. And therefore, it's something 
beyond us. We're going to note that grace, all the working of grace, has a goal, and that the goal of grace is our adoption in Christ. Um, And we're going to note various types of grace. So all the time that we're studying the catechism, um, we have the difficulty of trying to explain sometimes very big technical things that are summarized in just a few paragraphs in the catechism. But we will note these different types of grace. So the goal of grace is adoption, which connects to the question of causation being union in Christ, and the various types of grace. The last connection somehow is, what does this mean in us? So... We're going to look at the question, what does it mean to say that someone is holy? Which is a bit related to the question, what does it mean to say that someone is good? And we're going to note that the measure, if this is somehow a measure of holiness, you know, where are you on that scale? The measure, very simply, is love, is this divine charity within you. That is the measure of actions. That is the measure of a person. So an action is holy in as much as it is imbued with love, divine charity. A person is holy in as much as they are imbued with um, love, divine charity. Of, of a person, yeah. And that means with it that it is the measure of your eternal glory in heaven. The saints in heaven all have a wider range, array of different degrees of glory. What is the cause of their different degrees of glory? Simply the measure of love, the measure of the life of God, the measure of charity within them. The last thing I'm going to summarize on this board here that obviously links with the question of merit. Yeah, so what you do, your good deeds earn merit. What do we mean by good deeds? The amount of love that is within them. Merit, on one level, gains us something in heaven. Merit also, in this world, we merit certain things from God. We cooperate with the graces he gives us, 
and that merits him giving us more graces, that he wishes to give you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and you can only get that further grace if you've cooperated with this early stage of grace, yeah? So our grace merits more grace. Conversely, by failing to merit grace, we lose available further graces. By failing to merit, we lose available graces and goods. That there are goods that I could have in my life right now that I do not have because I didn't cooperate with graces that God was offering to me previously and I didn't cooperate with them. So you can see there's a whole lot of stuff going on here that relates these five categories, holiness, merit, causation, grace, and justification. And that's what we're going to try and run through in a summary today. Is there anything in that little blank spot for merit? There isn't, no. Okay. Because there is a kind of continuity across uh, and there's nothing kind of needed there. So that's, it's a deliberate blank. You know when you read a book and it says, this page left intentionally blank? Yeah. Yeah. So the middle part is like God's work and this is like the lower part kind of our Why did you split it up? Um, like, the, the deeds. What's causing what? So, good deeds earn merit, merit being the measure of things, but those being his deeds in us when we talk about merit, that is caused by grace, which is beyond us, but it is a free gift. <laughs> I need a roadmap. Yeah, it'll, maybe it'll make more sense as we go through the pages. Um, but that's basically the different ideas we're going to be bouncing around today. And you can see there's a lot going on here. Um, and in the Catechism, this is all said fairly briefly. Um, you know, there weren't that many paragraphs in this section of the Catechism. Okay, let's start with my notes then. Page one. So I start by asking the question, where to study grace as a topic? The choice of the catechism. Um, Say, so as outlined below, when grace was studied in the context of systematic theology, debate ensued and there was no resolution. The catechism returned to St. Thomas's approach, namely portraying grace in the context of the moral life. So. Here in the seminary, grace is a topic that is studied at a certain place in the course development, the, the various curriculums. Where are you going to put grace in the order of sequence of different topics? Which course is it going to go in? Which professor is going to teach it? What is it a subcategory of? Now, for recent centuries, it's been within dogma. It's been within systematic theology. 
Now, historically, after the Council of Trent, when that happened, um, that's resulted in an awful lot of very fractious debate. Before Trent, in St. Thomas's era, grace was studied in terms of the context of moral theology, where somehow it was less controversial. It was about what enables you to do stuff. Um, so the Catechism is returning to that sequencing, putting grace, the study of it, in the context of moral theology. Interestingly, and we were just discussing this at the theology faculty meeting, where is grace studied in our seminary? It's studied not in moral theology, it's studied in dogma. Father Bernard teaches it. Uh, and he was saying he'd be quite happy for someone else to do it. <laughs> it's a difficult topic. Um, anyway, so the catechism, there's a deliberateness about it being placed where it is in the catechism. Now, why is that? So there's a little historical summary here on the first page. 16th century controversies about grace, predestination, and free will. And some of this I'm sure you've heard bits of in popular um, apologetics, whatever. So the Protestant context. Calvin, he taught a thing called double predestination, in which, broadly speaking, God calls some to salvation and he calls others to damnation. That God not only knows who will be damned, but somehow from eternity chooses souls for damnation. Now, why is that important? Well, as I paraphrase there, God is in charge, not us. And so that preserves God's sovereignty. The problem, as we would see it, is that free will therefore seems to be an illusion. But this is Calvin's double predestination. More or less in parallel, but a little later, a similar uh, period, the Catholic debate, what I've said there, the Deoxilius controversy, had Dominicans arguing against Jesuits. So both Catholic, but both really going at it. Um, I, put a, I say some parallel debates. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, that seems a silly debate. Um, but if we ask the question, as I phrase it there, what is primary in causing justification, you being justified before God? Is it first God's grace moving in the soul, so God is sovereign, God is God? Or is it man's free will responding to the grace, so free will is real and we are not mere puppet, puppets? And this is basically what the debate very technically uh, concerned. So the debate was highly acrimonious, with both sides accusing the other of heresy. Um, and in the year 1607, Pope Paul V decreed that neither side is heretical and just forbade anybody publishing anything else on the issue. Yeah. Who is on my side? Um, you mean who are the good people? <laughs> um, well, one and two. Yeah, one and two. Now let me get that right in my head. Um, I think the Jesuits were defending the more free will approach, but actually, right now, I can't even have that clear in my head. So, ask Father Bernard at lunch. 
Um, yes. I think Deacon Cameron's doing his uh, yeah, thesis on this. Yeah. Um, okay. So within the church, when you have groups calling each other heretics, um, it's not a happy situation. So the Pope just puts a slap down on the whole debate and says, just shut up, everybody. Um, nobody's a heretic, um, but just stop talking about it. Yeah. Um, so I have, a, as the next category there, I ask a question. Is all of this linked in a faulty concept of freedom? So earlier in our course, we touched on the problem of the modern notion of freedom which flows out of the nominalist philosophy of the 14th century. In the modern view of freedom, God and freedom are polar opposites. In contrast, John Paul II says, true freedom is freedom for something, not freedom from something. That freedom has a goal and is measured by our achieving that goal. Now then use an analogy. So if you've got a little child reaching for something, if daddy picks up the child and lifts it so the child can get what he's reaching at, has the child been made less free or more free by the father interfering? More free free would be the Thomistic understanding, that grace moves you to do, it moves you to action in a way that leaves you more free than you were before God moved in you. So God is not the enemy of your freedom, but God is actually the enabler of your freedom. Thus to say that grace is primary does not undermine your free will, but just enables your free will. As I put it there, when God moves us by grace, does he oppose our freedom or assist it to its goal? He's assisting it to its goal. Then quoting St. Thomas directly, God's grace moves in us in such that we are more free with his assistance than we were without it. Yeah. I think that's more the Dominican versus Jesuit thing, which is the Jesuits are, I I would loosely summarize, trying to be super anti-Protestant and therefore defending free will. The Dominicans are trying to be authentic, which almost makes them look like Protestants and that they're defending the primacy of grace. Okay, this isn't a grace course, this isn't a dogma course, this isn't even a theology course. I'm just trying to give you, in a nutshell, why the Catechism made this deliberate choice to put grace in the context of moral theology. Um, so it's, it's a deliberate choice. Um, and it means grace is all about enabling good in action, which is what moral theology is all about. Okay, page two. Justification. So, the Protestant opinion first, 
and you know I'm going to concede here this is all very much thumbnail sketches of Protestant positions, therefore caricatures, but this is still the broad picture. So what is the Protestant opinion about justification? So we are justified by an act of faith in Christ. It is faith that justifies you. We are not justified by our deeds, says the Protestants. And they'd quote Romans 3.28, faith justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's not your works of the law that justify you, it's your faith. With this, I say justification is seen as a legal concept, that the sinner throws himself at the mercy of the judge who freely chooses to pardon or not with no basis in merit. Quoting Romans again, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have no merit. You can only throw yourself at the mercy of the judge. This means justification, I say, is not about a change in the sinner. It's about a change in the verdict. That's what's meant by justified. So Martin Luther's image, the sinner remains forever a pile of dung, merely covered in the clean white snow of Christ. You've all heard that image before. So the father looks down and he sees the pile of dung. But if you're covered in the snow of Christ, he doesn't see the dung. He just sees the beautiful white snow of Christ. The problem with that image as we would see it is you remain forever a pile of dung. The Catholic position is to say that is that faith versus deeds is a false dichotomy. So quoting James, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So how does the catechism put this? So the catechism roots the context in the change in man brought about by grace. That's the thing pivotal to all of this. A change happens in the person by grace. Justification is thus not merited by self-deeds, but by grace. But justification isn't independent of deeds, since it occurs with a change of conversion. So that justification isn't a mere external legal imputation, but a change of status that accompanies a change of being. Francisco, can you read that block quote from the Catechism, the which first, within it quotes the Council of Trent, which is responding to the Protestant Reformation. The first work of grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, effecting justification in accordance with Jesus, proclamation at the beginning of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moved by grace, man turns towards God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from all Justification is not uh, not only the remission of sin, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. So in this packaging, the change of your status before God, your justification, is one at the same time as the change in you of sanctification wrought by grace. So 
so I say bypassing the Protestant attempt to make sanctification a later and optional process that follows justification, the Catechism describes the following as simultaneous. Detachment from sin, reconciliation of God and man, the acceptance of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, the outpouring of faith, hope, and charity, being confirmed in the righteousness of God, justification entails the sanctification of man's whole being. So as the Catechism puts this, this all happens together. Whereas the Protestant image, you are justified by God, he says, you are now just in my sight because you put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you become holy, sanctified later, maybe, but that's an irrelevant question to the question of whether you're justified. You're justified by saying, I put my faith in Jesus. Now, the Catechism does also list this sequentially in terms of stages. Justification is merited by Christ's passion. That's the first thing. The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, affecting justification. Moved by grace, man turns towards God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. Justification follows on from God's forgiveness. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith, not in a private act of a believer. Okay, there's a lot going on there, yeah? And I know you always find it frustrating when I say this, but you will in a later course <laughs> get a more detailed analysis. But that's an outline of what the Catechism says about justification. The act by which you are made righteous in God's sight. You are justified in his sight. One of the things I'm trying to indicate with this chart here is we can't understand this without understanding how it relates to these other things. So let's grace, page three. So what is grace? Um, I've got at the top there four quotes from the Catechism, if we could read these out, Brother Adam, first. Grace is the help God gives us to respond to our vocation of becoming his adopted sons. Brother Adam. Yeah, you're, you're also called Brother Adam, in fact. <laughs> grace is a participation in the life of God. Adam. Grace is first and foremost the gift of the Spirit that justifies and sanctifies us. Supernatural. It surpasses the power of human intellect and will as that of every other creature. So it's a help. It participates in the life of God. It's a gift. And it's supernatural. It's something utterly beyond you. It's not a, a gift at the level of your nature. It's supernatural. What is its purpose? Um, Michael, can you read the first bullet point? To become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. All right. It introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life. By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of his body, <clears throat> as an adopted son. He can henceforth call God Father in union with the only Son. 
He receives the life of the Spirit, who breathes charity into him, and who forms the church. And all that makes you a new creation. So that's a brief picture of what is grace. Now the Catechism, following the scholastic divisions, says, well actually we can describe particular types of grace. Um, and it's interesting the Catechism, rather than kind of glossing over that, it used to be fashionable to, when I was in seminary, the guy who taught me who didn't like the Catechism when it came out, he said it's a dangerous document, he said. Um, anyway, um, he wouldn't have liked this partitioning of different types of grace. But what these different labels are doing is indicating that grace isn't just some vague blob type thing, but it has many specific tasks and we name different graces by the different effects they're aimed at. So first, actual graces. Catechism says, Actual graces, which refer to God's interventions, whether at the beginning of conversion or in the course of the work of sanctification. And I note, I say mystically, so when you receive a touch in prayer or an inspiration in a sermon, these are little bits of actual graces where God is kind of pushing you, prodding you, something specific. But even physically, God's grace includes, you know, that person you meet who talks to you, who helps you. Who, there are many different actual graces God gives you. But those graces exist to move you beyond them to something else, to habitual grace. I say the isolated impulses of actual graces are designed to lead us to that habitual possession of what's called sanctifying or deifying grace that makes us holy, makes us like God. Jake, can you read that next quote from the Catechism? Sure. Yeah. Sanctifying grace is an habitual gift, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself to enable it to live with God so when you have habitual grace it is steady within you habitual that is the same word used for sanctifying it is making you holy making you godlike brother adam i was going to ask is that synonymous with habitual grace yeah yeah <coughs> And thus, the Catechism uses those words kind of interchangeably in that same paragraph, habitual sanctifying. Okay. So is this like a, the grace to be virtuous? Kind of? If you have that grace, yes, that would be uh, virtuous. Uh, virtue is a big, complicated thing. Um, so it, we could ask which virtue, so we're meaning supernatural virtues in that context. So the natural virtue an athlete has wouldn't necessarily relate to habitual grace. Um, habitual grace, sanctifying grace, would be implying supernatural virtues, virtues that relate us to God. Whereas an athlete might have 
an habituation of virtue that is kind of his self-perfection and doesn't necessarily order him to God. Yeah. Is it accidental that there's like the actual graces <clears throat> are kind of like the continent man where he does the right thing sort of uh, sporadically and then habitual grace and habitual virtue are both like the possession of the thing in truth? Kind of, yeah. I suppose why I'm hesitant is we're looking at different questions there, so I wouldn't want to match those things up uh, and say this is definitely like that. Um, okay. Okay, some other types of grace. Sacramental graces. So gifts proper to the different sacraments that differ with each sacrament. So every sacrament, Jesus comes to you. So why do we not just have one sacrament? If it's Jesus coming to you, why do we need seven different sacraments? Because he comes to you differently in the different sacraments. There's a different grace available in those different sacraments. Uh, he comes with his healing in the sacrament of extreme unction. He comes with his forgiveness in the sacrament of confession. Um, he comes as the food for your soul in Holy Communion. It's the same him coming, same person, but there are different graces in those different sacraments that are all from him. Then there are thing co things called special graces. Open quotes, also called charisms, after the Greek term used by St. Paul and meaning favor. Gratuitous gift, benefit. Charisms are ordered towards sanctifying grace and are intended for the common good of the church. They are at the service of charity which builds up the church. So somebody might have a charism of being a good teacher, not a natural ability to be a good teacher, but a supernatural gift such that when he speaks, somehow grace is at work. Someone might be on, on one level not a beautiful speaker, coherent speaker, but somehow when he teaches, grace is at work. He has a charism of teaching. So you might also have a charism, some people have a charism of hospitality. In my last parish, there was a woman who just, it, it would seem to have been a supernatural gift, kind of everything she touched turned into hospitality. And I don't think it was just at the natural order, a supernatural gift. So St. Paul lists various charisms, some's an apostle, some's a teacher, some's an evangelist. Um, but there are all kinds of different charisms God gives in his church. That's a different type of grace. And then lastly, graces of state. So we've touched on this before. Every person is given the graces they need to live the life they are called to. According to the Catechism, Graces of state that accompany the exercise of the responsibilities of the Christian life and of the ministries within the church. So, it's tough being a priest. But I am in this state of life that is a priest. And God does not put me in this state and fail to give me the graces I need 
to do what I need to do in my state. I have the graces of state, of my particular state. You are seminarians, you have graces of state for your thing. It's a tough thing being a seminarian for six, seven, eight, nine years, whatever the latest PPF is decreeing for you. Um, that is a particular state, has particular graces that go with that state. Everyone in their different states, there are graces for that time. And what if you um, say you're a seminarian, but you just turned the wrong way and like come into seminary? Is God still going to give you those graces, even if it's like, oh, I really didn't want him to be here? He just didn't spend enough time in prayer and decided to apply or something like that. Or same for priests. Well, he might he, he might have wanted you to be a seminarian, even though he didn't intend for you to be a priest. Yeah, because yeah, so, seminary is a place so of. So, but my question is, if you're a person who like ends up in the wrong place or the wrong vocation, is he still going to give you the grace to do the vocation or job well? If you are in that state, you will have the graces of that state. So if you are validly married, you will have the grace to be married. Um, no, that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, so the seminarian who, to be a seminarian is to be discerning priesthood as well as information for priesthood. Therefore, part of the grace is given to the seminarian is to help you discern, should I continue in this or move out? Is that answering the question? Yeah. So there's the, the whole notion of graces of state God would not allow somebody to enter seminary and then not give them the grace to be in seminary. Yeah. Um. Okay, that's all we're going to say on grace. Oh, no, it isn't. Over the page. What do we got here? Okay. Sufficient grace and the grace of perseverance. Does everybody recognize that this page is absolutely identical from a page I gave you a couple of weeks ago in the context of... I can't even remember what that was. Was that mortal sin? Um, so, just to summarize briefly, sufficient grace, um, which is kind of overlapping with the question of graces of state, God gives everybody sufficient grace to do what he calls you to do, to live the commandments. God doesn't tell you not to commit adultery and then fail to give you the grace to obey that command. God doesn't require of you that you do your seminary work and not give you the grace you need to do your seminary work. There's always sufficient grace to avoid sin. Graces of perseverance. So, I said that to continue in grace is a further grace itself. Our Lady had that, not just that she started out free from sin, but she continued to be in free from sin. She continued to cooperate with grace all that time. That 
cooperation was itself a gift, was itself a grace. So persevering in grace is another grace again. So I said the simple, one of the simple consequences of that is to pray for the grace of perseverance. As I quoted an old religious dictum in one of my sermons last year, there are three things you need to continue to be a good religious, perseverance, perseverance, and perseverance. Um, you just stick at it. But to persevere is a grace, to pray for that grace. Page five, this is a new page. Here, quoting the Catechism, trying to relate these two things, predestination and free will. So I said Calvin had this thing, double predestination, where God somehow calls these people to be saved and calls those people to be damned. And so lots of Catholics will think we don't believe in predestination. But actually we do. We just don't believe in double predestination the way Calvin did. So those that are called to salvation, who are predestined to be saved, are predestined to that. Okay, predestination, yeah. Double refers to like some are predestined for hell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Little section here, predestination and free will. I say, the ability to respond and accept grace is itself a grace. It is only by grace itself that we continue to respond to grace and grow in grace. Josh, getting your name right this time. Can you read that one? The preparation of man for the reception of grace is already a work of grace. This latter is needed to arouse and sustain our collaboration in justification through faith and sanctification through charity. God brings to completion in us what he has begun, since he who completes his work by cooperating with our will began by working so that we might will it. Brother Adam. No one can merit the initial grace, which is at the origin of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life, as well as necessary temporal goods. So your initial conversion, your conversion being that response to grace that leads you to be justified before God, even that response to grace was itself a grace. Everything good you have, God has given. There isn't some other source of goodness. Grace is sovereign. Grace is primary. So how does that work with free will? Okay, that's a... Everything is grace in that way. And even your ability to respond is a result of grace. So your free will is only in relationship to God's grace. Good question, and I've been bouncing around that all morning. Um, so back to my image of the father lifting the child to reach for the thing the child was wanting. That doesn't oppose the child's free will. It's enabling that free will to reach where he was aiming to go. But that God, wouldn't have had the idea if the father there but does the father giving the child the idea of reaching for the apple oppose his free will or enable it? 
he wouldn't have had it without the father. So it doesn't seem like perfectly free, like the American sense of freedom. Not in the American sense of freedom, yeah. If freedom is me completely creating myself to be whatever I want to be, then it isn't that. That the what I was trying to say on page one is there's a concept of freedom where freedom isn't just this thing in itself. Freedom itself has a goal. So the child doesn't know the existence of chocolate until it's given its first piece of chocolate. Does that interfere with the child's freedom? Or just kind of enable it to then know what chocolate is to choose it in the future. So to quote back to St. Thomas, what I said on the first page, God's grace moving in us makes us more free than we were without his grace. Okay, so repeat analogy. Every analogy breaks down at a certain point. It illustrates something, but it doesn't, it is only an analogy. Is this a different question or the? I think it's along the same lines. Is, is all grace necessarily effective? Which I know is a bigger question than we can answer in here, but for the purposes of the analogy, I think it's important to at least touch on. Because it's possible for us to choose not to cooperate with grace. Somehow it would seem, therefore, grace isn't forced. Um, but I think you're getting very close to the Dominican versus Jesuit debate there. Um, but, but I think you're seeing the issues at play here. And so kind of some of the bottom line positions the Catechism is wanting us to know, grace is not the enemy of free will. Free will is real. Grace is real. Merit is real, but merit is also somehow only a gift, a grace. So free will and grace both are real. God knows what he's doing. God has a plan. God has predestined the, the saved to be saved. But that doesn't mean he's chosen the damned to be damned. He allows that to happen. But whenever you do good, including your very first act of conversion, that in itself was a movement of grace. So can we properly say that we are a cause of, to use causation, can we properly call ourselves a cause? You have on, on the diagram, right, right. God, union with Christ, and cooperation. So there's secondary causality, not just primary causality. Um, so yes, but we're not primary. But we do truly cause our own merit. But only by grace. But only by grace. That's, yeah. I, yeah, that's difficult. It's difficult, yeah. If you 
came into this lecture and left it thinking, oh yeah, I completely understand justification, sanctification, grace and everything. Um, you really wouldn't have understood anything. So this is just an introductory course, I'm afraid. Um, okay, so I've thrown those two things out there, predestination and free will. Next related section that the catechism has, can we know we are saved? Can we know we're in a state of grace? Now, in the thing we looked at with the question of mortal sin, can you know you're in mortal sin? Can you know the flip side, that you're in a state of grace? What does the catechism say? Uh, Adam, could you read that? If you could read the first half and then, Hunter, if you could read the, a pleasing illustration. Since it belongs to the supernatural order, grace escapes our experience and cannot be known except by faith. We cannot therefore rely on our feelings or our works to conclude that we are justified and saved. However, according to the Lord's words, thus you will know them by their fruits. Reflection on God's blessings in our life and in the lives of the saints offers us a guarantee that grace is at work in us and spurs us on to an ever greater faith and an attitude of trustful poverty. A pleasing illustration of this attitude is found in the reply of St. Joan of Arc to a question posed as a trap by her ecclesiastical judges. Asked if she knew that she was in God's grace, she replied, If I am not, may it please God to put me in it. If I am, may it please God to keep me there. So you know, the Protestant wants to know where he is before God. And the Protestant will classically say, that you do know whether you're saved or not. If you've made that act of faith, you are saved. And you know the line, once saved, always saved. Um, and they will ask you, are you saved? Yeah, we've all been asked that question, um, different degrees of aggressiveness. Um, <laughs> are you saved? Well, the catechism saying you cannot know whether you are saved. So the answer I put there, which uh, is from a fantastic book by Carl Keating, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Um, are you saved, asked the fundamentalist. And the Catholic replies, I am redeemed. And like the Apostle St. Paul, I am working out my salvation in fear and trembling, with a hopeful confidence, but not a false assurance. All this being, as the church is taught, unchanged since the time of Christ. That's quoting Philippians, work out your faith, salvation in fear and trembling. That's a line I memorized when I was in college for my, my evangelical friends. It's um, a good encapsulation of, of the Catholic position, but also everything we've been kind of working through in this section here. And I can remember one of my Protestant friends saying, how can you be content not knowing whether you're saved? And I equally found it hard to understand kind of the arrogance of thinking I can demand of God that he indicate to me with absolute clarity that I'm in this saved state and I'll always be there. Well, God's God, I'm not. He knows I don't. And this is a, a big thing of humility. Can you choose later to not be saved if you're a Protestant or not? 
That depends which <laughs> it depends which version of Protestantism you're following. It's a good question. It is a good question. So they, there's this tagline once saved, always saved. Therefore they would deny the whole possibility of apostasy. Uh, and I can remember one of my evangelical friends at college, um, you know, at a certain stage saying apostasy is impossible. And then because of what he saw in one of our colleagues saying, actually, I now think I've witnessed apostasy um, and therefore apostasy must be possible. Now, there are some Protestants who just say, ah, oh, well, he only looks like he was saved. He wasn't really saved. Uh, so, and, and so they would, how do you therefore know whether you're saved? <sighs> how do I know? Because um, the act of faith I'm making, I might be somehow kind of faking that act of faith. Um, yeah, so whatever kind of weird scrupulosity you can get as a Catholic, you can get super weird scrupulosity uh, as a Protestant too. If you're going to be OCD, you can just have many different ways you can be OCD. Um, sorry, where was I going with that? Are you saved? Oh yes, so you look to your deeds, so the Calvinist would look to his behavior and that would be a sign to him. The fact he's done these good things must be an indication that he must be in the saved category. And depending where that goes with kind of prosperity theology, if you are in the saved category, then God will be giving you wealth and house and a nice wife and everything. And those are signs that you're in the saved category as well. So you definitely want to be saved, yeah? Okay. Kind of going back on that question, can they be unsaved and they look like they were saved? Doesn't that kind of answer the question that they don't really know what they needed at that point? Because if they only look like they were saved? Yeah, and there are various different versions of Protestantism on those questions, but it's all very different from the Catholic position, which is there in the Catechism. Okay, let's move on to another bit of what's related here, the question of merit, page six. And this, at a practical level, is very important. So page six. Say, Catholics speak frequently and truly of us meriting the reward of heaven or meriting the damnation of hell. The Lord Jesus teaches that we will be rewarded or condemned on account of our deeds. Where does he hinge it on deeds? Francisco, can you read that quote from Matthew for us? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, the king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So as the Lord describes the final judgment, he doesn't say, those who put their faith in me and then produced good deeds, having been justified and then later sanctified. No, he hinders the entire thing on their behavior, their good deeds. So if we're going to be scriptural and look to what Jesus says, merit and deeds seems a pretty safe way to go. I say but, and this is a big but, merit can only be seen as an analogous or relative term 
when, we, when considered with respect to God. So God is God. He's infinite. He's perfect. You are this little thing down there and you've been bad. Um, how can you possibly <laughs> claim to merit anything? Um, Brother uh, Adam, can you read the next quote from the Catechism with respect to God? Uh, with regard, regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality, for we have received everything from Him, our Creator. So, you do truly merit, but in a relative or analogous sense. Why? How? So, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the perfect man and God, has infinite merit. So I say, first bullet point, we have merit only in as much as we are in union with him and partake of his merit. That it is adoption into Christ that makes us sharers in his merit. Michael, can you read the next block from the Catechism? Filial ad adoption in making us partakers by grace in the divine nature can bestow true merit on us as a result of God's gratuitous justice. This is our right by grace, full right of love, making us co-heirs with Christ and worthy of obtaining the promised inheritance of eternal life. The merits of our good works are gifts of the divine goodness. Grace has gone before us. Now we are given what is due. Our merits are God's gifts. There's a phrase. Our merits are God's gifts. So even our merits that we truly merit are a gift from God. Next line. The charity of Christ is the source in us of all our merits before God. Grace, by uniting us to Christ in active love, ensures the supernatural quality of our acts and consequently their merit before God and before men. The saints have always had a lively awareness that their merits were pure grace. So the charity of Christ, the love of Christ in you is the source of all your merits. You give to the poor full of the love of Christ, then that is a good deed. You give to the poor out of pride and vanity, it's nothing. Um, and as much as the love of Christ is the movement in you, in your grace, your deeds, your deeds have merit. Sorry, did you have your hand? You had your hand. Um, so do we have like a definition of what merit is? I gotcha. Because in my head, merit seems, or at least how I define it in my head is merit is like that which is earned. Okay. And grace being that which is freely given as a gift. Okay, Adam has an answer for you us. Really, you do want to put up on the dictionary? Is that good enough? Oh, it's I'll a, just read it out loud. The uh, quality of being particularly good or worthy, especially so as to deserve praise or reward. Okay, which is kind of what you were saying, just not dictionary style. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yes, that is what merit means. Um, so, th this is why, how can we really say you merit before God? Only in a relative sense, only in an analogous sense. So it's, okay, it's not perfect. It's not like perfect merit in that sense. It's only that's why it's relative. And that you only have it in as much as you are in union with Jesus. He has perfect, infinite merit because he is God and man. You unite yourself to him, and your little deed becomes a big deed because it's united to his infinity. 
Yeah. So married to, it's a matter of cooperation. Or yes. really, yeah, I guess we're trying to emphasize the like, efficacy of grace. It's a matter of, what, not, not cooperating? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that works. So quoting Augustine, as we did earlier on the page there, our merits are God's gifts, which is almost a contradiction. It's a merit, but it's a gift. This links us to the last section on this page. Where's the initiative? Where's the beginning of this? I say the initiative belongs to God, not to us. But by cooperating with grace and by letting his charity be operative in us and love in us, we do truly merit. By cooperating with grace and by doing good deeds, we merit more goods. I say many graces and goods are lost to us because we decline to cooperate with past graces. This is a big practical point. Therefore, it's difficult to do that good thing. It's difficult to cooperate with that grace. But if you do, there's yet more grace that will build upon that and more and more. Um, and there are graces I now don't have, to repeat what I said earlier, I don't have because I failed to cooperate with other graces God gave me back in the day or offered to me back in the day. And I somehow kind of blew them off. Two more quotes from the Catechism there. Um, can you read the first of those? Yes. Since. By cooperating with grace and by doing... Sorry, the since. Okay. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification. At the beginning of conversion, moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification. For the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life, even temporal goods like health and friendship can be merited in accordance with God's wisdom. These graces and goods are the object of Christian prayer. Prayer attends to the grace we need for meritorious actions. Okay, so I was mocking earlier prosperity theology. But here there is almost, you might say, something of that sense that you can merit temporal goods by praying for them, by striving for them, by cooperating with other graces God gives you. He has temporal goods he will give you that relate to not necessarily the things you want, but the things he knows are good for you. Okay, moving on, our last page here, seven. What is holiness? Okay, I asked the question on top of the page, what is the criteria for measuring holiness? I asked the other question, is holiness complex and mathematical, mapped out as 35% humility, 12% prudence, 13% faith, and so forth? Um, when I was about your age, I guess, when I was in seminary, I had a vision, you know, I wanted to be perfect, I wanted to be holy, and I thought, it, what, what do I need to do to get these things right? Um, what is the measure of holiness? Well, holiness, very simply, is love. The measure of holiness in a person is the measure to which divine charity lives in him. 
The measure of the perfection of a specific act is the measure with which it is done out of love. And the degree of glory you will possess in heaven is the degree of love with which you lived on earth. John Paul, can you read the quote from St. Thomas there? A thing is said to be perfect insofar as it attains its proper end, which is the ultimate perfection thereof. Now it is charity that unites us to God, who is the last end of the human mind, since he that abideth in charity abideth in God, and God is him. Therefore, the perfection of the Christian life consists radically in charity. Okay, which is really simple, um, but it's also the ultimate truth. Am I holy? Am I loving? Is this deed good, holy? Is it loving? Um, what degree of glory will I have in heaven? What degree of love have I loved with on earth? So to close with the um, image St. Therese of Lisieux had um, of um, heaven being all these ch different chalices and every chalice was full to the brim but the chalices were all of different sizes and while we live in this world we are making ourselves into what size chalice we will be forever in heaven and whatever that is it will be utterly filled by God but we do by how we live on earth by how we cooperate with his grace here on earth change what size that chalice is going to be Okay, we've run through a lot today. This is one of, an example of one of those things in the catechism where there's kind of one sh small little section that seems, well, it's just a few pages. Um, wow, is there a lot in this, yes? So we've been noting the justification controversy. What do I need? What happened by which someone is justified before God? We noted that that is a work of grace but that our merits do truly merit before God, even though they merit by our participation in God. That it's all goodness is caused by God, so that our good deeds are his deeds in us, but that our cooperation is truly our cooperation, that free will is a real thing, and that running through everything, the measure of it, uh, is the measure with which 